Hello and welcome back to the What The Folk podcast in association with Viper Goalkeeping. Today's guest is a former Leicester City and Sunderland winger and someone who has bravely spoken about mental health issues since his retirement. Welcome to the show, Matty Piper. How are you, mate? You all right? How are you, Grail? Thanks yeah. for having me on, mate. Not a problem, I've, mate. Um, I just thought I'd show everyone that. Yeah. Fell cause... over, busted my head on the toilet. Uh, and I wasn't drunk. Everyone, you know the trouble. <laughs> this is the trouble. You know when you come out and you're so open and honest and you tell yeah. people about your struggles and the fact I was addicted to alcohol and such and such. Every time you have a mishap like this, people always think, is he drinking again? Is this happening? So no, I wasn't drinking. My blood pressure just dropped and I fell over and headbutted the toilet. But it's we're all funny. good, mate. We're all good. <laughs> I, I read the um, I read the like the tweets and stuff afterwards, and I read your tweet afterwards, and everyone's just like, "I hope you're okay, pipes. Hope everything's well." Like that's not how Twitter works. Like no, you, that's what I put. Said. That's what I put out there. I was like, "This is not supposed to be what Twitter's like." You know, we all know Twitter <laughs> is the take the piss playground of the social medias. Absolutely. I, I was going to put it out there and get butchered for for hours, but everyone was really sweet and nice. Bless them. Maybe maybe we're all becoming aware of, e- of each other's, uh, making sure we're looking after each other, you know what I mean? Which is nice, in a way, in a way. Um, <laughs> yeah. First and foremost, you became a bit of a pro during a lockdown of podcasting yourself, if I don't mind saying. Um, I listened to every single one of them that you did. Um, how much did you enjoy oh, catching thanks, up with mate. old teammates and stuff like that over lockdown? Yeah, no, it was good. I mean, I wish I had done it where I'd do a platform like what yours is. On, um, on your podcast, you know, where you've got a longer period of time and you yeah. can talk and get deeper into different subjects. I just had a set, set of questions and I tried to do it. Basically, it was a podcast for Twitter yeah. because I had the two minute 20 rule. So I had to try and fit it all in in two minutes, 20 seconds. So it was just fast fire questions, but it was good catching up with everyone. And as you know, you know, before we came on today, we probably spoke for half an hour before we started, started the show. So catching up with all them people, Mick McCarthy, mate, Mick McCarthy was brilliant. Battered me for about half an hour. Um, how injured I was and pipes. If you were a horse, you'd be shot. You would have been shot and all this kind of stuff. Mate, absolutely battered me. But great to catch up with everyone. And uh, probably my favourite, though, I think, was Niall Quinn. Yeah. Niall Quinn was an absolute... I already knew it because obviously I played with Niall, but proper, proper top man. He's got a real aura about him. I interviewed him uh, last year just before the checker trade on a, a different platform. And um, when he walked into the room, it was like a face-to-face one. He's just got this huge aura. Was he like that in the dressing room, Quinny, as well then? Yeah, he was. I mean, as soon as I got there, you know, on the podcast that I did, he referred to me as one of the young lads. Even though I had signed for quite big money and I was already, I think, 20, 21. Yeah. He, he sort of referred to me as one of the young lads, but that's how he was. He sort of had everyone under his wings. And it was funny because when he spoke about it in the podcast, he said that the time that was ruined at that football club was when Howard Wilkinson came to the club. And that's sort of when older pros helping out younger pros and we're all like in it together, that feeling of in it together, what we had under reading, sort of disappeared when Howard Wilkinson came in. And I was like, Quinny, exactly my thoughts entirely because people know (laughs) What I think about um, Howard, uh, I've seen him recently, actually. This is the right. weird thing. I've seen him at a train station in London, and he, I didn't think he'd recognise me, so I'm sort of swearing on my, under my breath, like, fucking idiot, like, uh, <laughs> like this, as I'm walking by him. And he's gone, how are you, Pipes? And I was like, oh, my God. And he was really nice. And we spoke, 
And I was thinking, oh God, I hope he's not seen any of them podcasts I've done with the Sunderland fans. <laughs> thing is, he, he could listen to like a, a plethora of different podcasts from a Sunderland perspective, Howard. And I, I don't think, unfortunately, you know, there's one guy that spoke to me about him and we're talking years ago that kind of went, oh yeah, I was used to that kind of management. And it was Stefan Schwartz. Of all the people, he was like, yeah, that's normal in Europe. And I was like, really? Wow. I mean, that, I mean, he was successful with the style that he had, obviously, under Leeds. And, you know, football moves on, though, and you've got to adapt. That's Absolutely. why Alex Ferguson was so good, because he adapted. He knew that you, you can't keep that sort of that style of management and keep getting results. So you have to adapt and change. And the, the only thing, you know, the kindest thing I'd say about Howard is it worked back then with Leeds, but 25, 20 years later, you can't keep that same style and think it's going to keep working. And better than Steve Cockwell, though, I suppose. Eh? I always remember Steve Cockwell more than Howard. Jesus. Yeah, mate. The, uh, another one, uh, but totally different in the fact that he was very arrogant. That's I've one heard thing. That. That I, yeah, that's one thing that I can't stand. He was hugely, hugely arrogant. Um, obviously you've heard the famous Tom Pepper story now um, when he butchered both of them and Cottrell was sort of snivelling and crying in the background because he didn't get the job when Howard got sacked um, that was a good day <laughs> without being horrible you know I'm a, I get where you're coming I try, from yeah I try and be a nice guy and I'm sure if I met him in at different parts of my life and they weren't my managers and assistant managers it might have been a different story and you know, I hear Jamie Redknapp talks very highly of um, Steve Cottrell, said he's a really nice guy, helped him through a tough time when he sort of finished football. Um, so they obviously have got nice qualities, but I just didn't see any of them. <laughs> Mate, in my jobs, you look at like, you know, people look at it as football is a totally different thing. I've worked in jobs and I could give you some managers that I'd run through a brick wall for in a call centre. Um, yeah, yeah. And I could also give you managers that like to run into a brick wall that I work in the call centre. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and I'm sure it doesn't make them bad people. You just you, it's chemistry, isn't it? Sometimes, especially with football. That's exactly it, mate. And that's why I was I was really careful. I mean, I tell the truth when I come on podcasts and things like that. But I'm just really careful about butchering anyone too much, just because I don't know what was going on with them that day that I met on. Yeah. I don't know the issues that they've got going on in their lives. And so I, I try and, you know, try and stay balanced with what, what I say about people. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's the right thing to do. But at the same time, if you want to butcher them, I'm not going to stop you. Um, from, from, from my side, I'm a Sunderland fan. So um, what I quite like talking about uh, Mick McCarthy before we delve in uh, sort of you're your really far in the past. I quite like, quite like with them. Um, I liked with Mick McCarthy how he rinsed you instantly and, and rinsed Michael Bridges instantly. Um, <laughs> is, is that just what Mick Mack's like? Is he just kind of like, because you know what? You'd, it's one of those things when you listen to it and you wouldn't have took offence to it. It was just funny. You just, yeah, Ellie was like that. Is that what he's like in the dressing room as well? Yeah, and that's why I liked him. You know, everyone that knows me in my life who's, who's very close to me knows that one of my, you know, one of my big points that I always talk about is the important the importance of being honest. Yeah. And even if you're telling me something that I don't really want to hear, if, if it's coming from an honest view, you know, all my kids, my missus, everyone, tell me it, just relay it to me. And that's how the gaffer was. Um, and that's why I got on so well with him. And that's probably why I didn't get on very well with Howard because he, he would talk behind your back. He would, 
he wouldn't say things at a certain point, but then he'd say it later on in a, um, a team environment that he could have said to me face to face, things like that. And, and Mick McCarthy was very much like that. Salt of the earth, mate. He, that's the saying that comes to mind when I think of Mick McCarthy. Salt of the earth, says it how it is. Perhaps if you were horse, you'd be shot by now, lad. You know, I'll always remember that saying. And I put Good impression that. I put, that. <laughs> yeah. Well, he said it that often because I was always in the injury room, weren't I? But he was. Uh, but we had our set twos as well. Um, you know, where I stand up to him. I, I drove away from the training ground one day because he wanted he wanted me to play in a behind closed doors game, and he just wouldn't have that. I I w- wasn't going to play. He thought yeah. that the physios had told him that maybe some of my pain in my knee was in my head now because I'd had so many knee operations. And he'd just come in the dressing room and he was like, get your boots on and fucking get out there, Pops. And I was like, Gaffer, I ain't playing. Like, and we went backwards and forwards until it was full-blown arguments. And then I was just like, you know what? Fuck this, Gaffer, I'm going. I got in my car and I drove off. But when you make a decision like that with a manager like Mick McCarthy, as I'm driving out the training ground, you're all still boosted up from the adrenaline and you're feeling yeah. tough that you've stood your ground. And then when that adrenaline starts to seep away and you're heading home with a gaffer like Mick McCarthy, you fucking absolutely fill your pants, mate. Thinking, oh my God, I pulled the car over. I was like, oh God, what have I done? All sweat coming down my head. I said, I've got to go back and apologise and say, gaffer, I'm really sorry. I'll play in the game. And But I carried on driving home. And the next day, I got a voicemail on my phone he said come into the training ground early so I thought he was going to sack me yeah he's brilliant he said I can understand you know that's why I liked him I can understand why you did what you did I'm going to fine you a week's wages for doing what you did he said we can't get past that but I understand why you're doing what you did you've had constant knee injuries it must be tough for you and really got down with me on that level and that's what makes him such a good manager I think because he, he understands his players yeah, you know what, and it's like, um, I also refer to the Ipswich thing and the fact that Ipswich fans really didn't seem to take to him. Then he left and they've kind of plummeted through the divisions. I had, uh, who was yeah. I had on? Matt Jarvis. Matt Jarvis, who had him at Wolves. And he yeah, more yeah. or less said the same thing, favourite manager he's had. And I mean, there's something about, you know what it is with Mick McCarthy? I don't know him. I've never had a conversation with him. I only know him as the character he is on TV um, and also mm. the manager of my football club for a few years. And I like him. I really like yeah. him. I remember when he got sacked, and you've got to bear in mind, he was part of our, he managed us up until March of our worst ever, well, the Premier League's at the time, worst ever football club in terms of the points that we got there. And I don't think you'll find yeah. many people on Sunderland that'll say, oh, Mick McCarthy, what a terrible manager. Everyone seems to have time for him and they kind of almost understand that that issue was along the line of the budget he had as opposed to Mick McCarthy being a bad manager because and yeah. no disrespect to some of the lads that I know, but if you look at the team that he got up, mm. the team that went down under Coleman was probably better on paper than that team that he got up. I mean, you got players in there mm. that he brought in from Dumbarton, Neil Collins, Danny yeah. Collins, Chester, Liam Lawrence, Mansfield. And I know they all went on to have good careers, like Dean Whitehead and whatnot especially, but they were absolute mm. no-ones with, with no experience in that division. And they won the yeah. bloody league. Steve Nelliott. He turned Stephen Elliott from a, a youth team player to a 15-goal-a-season championship striker. That doesn't happen these days. It just doesn't. No. Jeff, Jeff Whitler. Um, Love Paul Jeff Robinson. Whitley. You know, players that he got that no one else sort of wanted 
Um, but that's exactly what I'm saying. Because he was that guy, a real great man manager. So he could get 100% out of a player that another manager could only get 25, 30% out of. He made yeah. them players believe in themselves and that team ethic, and it's all of us together, that's what made those performances go up. And it reminds me of a story, and I don't know if I've said this before, it's just triggered it in my mind, that what the gaffer's like. So we, we played down, it was when the season we won the championship. Yeah. And we played down um, south somewhere. So we flew back to Newcastle Airport we all come back and just to encapsulate what the gaffer was like, as in, this is all of us together. Um, the gaffer, a few of the physios and his backroom staff were sort of leading us through the airport as we were walking in Newcastle. And we had just won the game down south, whoever we played, and we were walking through. And this Newcastle fan, clearly because he had a Newcastle top on, sort of walked by and he went, fuck off, MacArthur. Like, I can't do the Newcastle accent or I'd do it. He said, fuck off MacArthur, like that. And then he started butchering a couple of the players. And then the gaffer was just turning around to us all and saying, ignore him, ignore him, keep walking, lads. So we're all walking. But then there was a, like, another three or four lads that come and joined him. They're obviously going on a boozy trip somewhere. And they all had Newcastle tops on. And then they kept shouting and abusing us as we're walking through. And it's, it's all young, fit players, obviously. that could A few of them could look after themselves, Kevin yeah. Kyle, people like that. And... Um, then, then the guy went, stadium a light, more like the stadium a shite. And the gaff went, I've had fucking enough of this. Chucked his bags down. And he went, come on then, you bastard. Come on then. And he stood there like this. And we're all like, fucking hell. And he's like, lads, get behind me. Come on, you bastards. And he's standing there like that. And then this lad wanted it. And I didn't think the gaff, what I, I seen for the first time, like I love the gaff, but I seen for the first time that, oh, you fucker, he's melted a little bit because he, he was having it and he thought that would scare him to make him run off. Yeah. And this lad went, come on then, and started walking forward. And then the gaffer was sort of, no, then one's like, sort of backing up. And his arms come down a little further. And then he's like, lads, get your stuff, we're going. <laughs> so we all like grabbed our bags. I mean, people like me, mate, who ain't scrappers, we grabbed our bags. Mate, I was in that car park before fucking anyone could realise Got in my car, we're all filing into a car as all these Sunderland players because then loads of them started coming now. There, there must have been about 15, 20 lads then that wanted to scrap and to get something in the newspapers. You know, scrapping with the Sunderland players. and the, Yeah. And everyone's cars are shooting off in all different directions. I've left my lights on for the whole time we was away. So I get in my uh. car... They're all searching around the cars in the car park at Newcastle Airport trying to find all Sunderland players or staff. And my fucking car won't start. So I'm ringing all the lads. Lads, come back. Come back, pick me up. My car won't start. Fuck off pipes. There were loads of them in the end. We ain't coming back there. So for about half an hour, while I was waiting for the AA, I hid in the footwell of the car while all these lads are walking around all the cars trying to find us. <laughs> I said to the gaffer the next morning, Oi, gaffer, don't be starting no fights and then not fucking backing it up, you fucking wimp. But, but, that's what he was like, though. It was like, it's us against everyone else. Yeah. You wouldn't expect them to come back, though, to be fair. It's like it's proper, like, standard football crack, isn't it? Getting shouted at in the street and in the airport and stuff like that. It's probably just taking them by surprise that the lads actually wanted some. And then if there's been loads of them as well, well fair enough. Um, yeah, mate. Loads. I'm, I'm quite surprised that uh, Kevin Carr wasn't at the front of the... I mean, Kevin Carr would throw himself in front of anything, wouldn't he? Pretty much. 
Yeah, normally. I mean, some of the lads that you thought were tough at that time didn't really do anything. So, you know, the lads that ain't tough anyway, we were the ones that got to the cars first, like sprinting off, all these Newcastle fans running after us and uh, trying to hide in the car park. But it was good time, but it was just a story to show you what the gaffer yeah. was like. He was like always front and centre. He backed down a little bit, to be fair to him. I'm not saying he's shitty, but he backed down a little bit. But he had the, you know, as a footballer, looking at that, where your gaffer's standing at the front when there's loads of people trying to, trying to get at you. Yeah. That's, that's how he built that team ethic. And that's why they did so well under him. Before I probably delve too deep into Sunderland, because there's, there's so much stuff to chat with Sunderland, I obviously want to speak right time at Leicester, because that's your club. I know you're Leicester and Sunderland because of who you played for, but Leicester's your club, let's be honest. Um, yeah. I don't know if anyone's ever done it before, but like delving back into your childhood, obviously you're a big Leicester fan. So what are the earliest memories of you like falling in love with football? Because we've all had that moment, haven't we? Yeah. Um, my mum playing with me in the back garden, really. My old man used to take me out. He really wanted a footballer as a son, my old man. So my yeah. older brother's a professional cricketer, <clears throat> or he was a professional cricketer. He played for Warwickshire. Um, but my old man always wanted a... a footballer for a son because he had dreams to play football and he took me out in the back garden when I'm three four years old I kept picking it up and my mum played at the time so my old man was like coming in the house hey, he's fucking useless he's never gonna play uh, so for the next two three years it was my mum playing with me in the back garden taking me park doing this doing that one the old man's at work so that's what triggered it and then as soon as I started playing for the school team and scoring goals that feeling of scoring a goal and you just took me on from there. And then I signed for Leicester when I was eight years old. So never really looked back from them, mate. And um, I went Forest first, actually. I went Nottingham Forest for two training sessions. Cried all the way there. Cried all through the training sessions because I didn't want to be there. Not because it was Forest, just because I was nervous yeah. at that time. And then Leicester come and knock in. And as soon as I got to Leicester, it just felt comfortable it was it was loads of lads there that I played against in schools and around Leicestershire so uh, I went into Leicester and, and never looked back but the funny thing is my old man is from London so and he moved to Leicester and met my mom he's a massive Arsenal fan huge Arsenal fan since he was eight nine years old so in my house my mom's a huge Leicester fan my old man's a huge Arsenal fan so I grew up liking Arsenal and Leicester, but obviously playing for Leicester as well. With um, Leicester at the time, when you signed for them when you were about eight, who would have been the, the main manager at that point, or even the youth team manager? The manager at that point was... Was it O'Neill? Brian Little. Oh, Brian Little. Jeez, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brian Little, who I know quite well now because we've got a mutual friend and I see him all the time and... No, the funny thing was, Brian Little was the first man to... It was on Sky Sports. Imagine this. So on Sky Sports, I'm 13 years old. Uh, I think it was 13 or 14. I've seen it at home. It was a Leicester v Derby match. And Brian Little was in the studio because he, he had um, moved on as manager by then. Uh, 30, 13 years old. And uh, they're, set, they're talking about prospects at Leicester City. So you've got to think this was a Premier League game. And he's in the studio talking... And he said, he said uh, we've got Emil Heske, a guy called Emil Heskey coming through. 
we've got a guy called Stefan Oaks and Julian Jochim. He was reading all these names off. And then he said, and then they're really excited by a real young guy. He's only 13 or 14 at the minute, but Matt Piper. And I was like, what the fuck? I couldn't <laughs> believe it. He said my name on Sky Sports. And I was only 13 or 14 because I'm one of these lads. You know, when you get a dog, I've got a dog. You know, when you've got a dog where you pick a stick up or a ball and it just looks at the ball and then yeah. you throw it and it fetches it, brings it back and it's all about the ball. That's what I, that's what I was like playing football. It was just the ball. It weren't sitting there thinking, oh, am I a good player? You know, trying to analyze it. It yeah. was just run after the ball, shoot, score, cross. It was just really simple for me. So when that was the first time that triggered my mind to think, oh shit, maybe I'm decent. Because I, I didn't look at it and think coaches or anything thought I was a brilliant player at the time. In your mind, though, do you look back now, you know, what are you, 37, 38? Um, yeah, 38 now, yeah. Do you look back now, though, and understand why they were excited by your talent, like, and the raw materials that you had? Because for my memory, obviously, I only seen you when you were 20, 21, and it was very much the raw materials, like pace, speed, ability to get the ball in, win a corner. Looking back then, when you were 13, 14, I imagine you had at least some of those qualities, or, or all of them. Can you understand now why they were excited at, at the age that you are now and the amount of football that you've watched? Yeah, I think, yeah, I can do because I was quick. I was direct, um, but I also had a good touch. And, and around that time, there were sort of players coming through that were, they only had really one outstanding attribute. Well, I only had one outstanding attribute, my pace, but I had a good touch to go with it. So I think at that time, they looked at it and they thought, we can create a player out of this. And at that time, I was a forward and they changed me into into a winger just because at that time getting in the first team at Leicester they wanted more crosses in the box because they had the likes of Brian Dean James Scrocroft they had sort of big guys that needed crosses so the last two years of me being in the youth team they sort of converted me to a winger um, but yeah you can look back now and think wow yeah I was a I was a good player yeah absolutely <laughs> um so when it comes to sort of your idols growing up, then if you go to a club when you're eight years old, I imagine you've already started watching football because you're, you're within a football club. I think I was about six when I started watching football, something like that. So who were your heroes growing up then? Did, were you looking towards the forwards or did you kind of watch more wingers as you were growing up? Yeah, more, more strikers. Um, Ian Wright was Great huge striker. for me. Ian Wright. And so I used to do the ball boying at Leicester. Mm-hmm. And Ian Wright, you know, the old saying goes, never meet your heroes. Yeah. So I, I absolutely idolised him. He was all over my wall at home. And even though I was a Leicester fan, I had Arsenal all over my room because of Ian Wright. And I was a ball boy and I was a real shy, quiet kid. I sprinted on the pitch after Arsenal v Leicester um, at Filbert Street. And I said, right here, can I have your autograph, please? Like, it took, you don't realise, Graham. How much courage that took me to to ask a professional footballer that at that time because I was so shy. And he just turned around and went, nah, and kept walking. And I was like, but right here. And he went, didn't you hear what I said? I said, no. And I was like, fucking hell. And they say, never meet your heroes, don't they? (laughs) Yeah. So that killed killed me a bit, but I still love him. I've met him since then because I do the commentary for Leicester now. So sometimes he's he's in the media suites where I go in. And I told him that story just to fucking make him feel bad. But he was like, well, what was the score in the game? I said, you lost 1-0. And he went, well, there you go then. Stop moaning. 
because I ain't signing autographs if we've lost. And I was like, oh, yeah, true. <laughs> did you hear the story about Roy Keane? Um, did you play with Nyron Nosworthy? Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, so... Big nugs there. Oh, what a guy. The smoothest voice on the planet. Um, yeah. And a man that can really pack away a pint, considering he's got, like, this ridiculously ripped physique. Like, it yeah. doesn't look like he drinks any pints. But he... Specimen, mate. He was on about Roy Keane, and Roy Keane did similar to a young, a young lad at like an airport when he was at Sunderland. It's this young Man United fan, I think it was, and said, "Oh, can I have your autograph?" And no, no, you, you, you can't. And the, the granddad went, oh, "He's a big Man United fan. Like he idolises you. Can he, can he please have your autograph?" And Roy Keane was like, "Nope, I've said no." And he said the lad left it for a bit, and then the granddad went over and was like, "Please, Roy, can he, can he please have your autograph or just a photo, just anything? Like he absolutely idolises you." And Roy went, no. And the kids started crying. And what Roy Keane wow. did apparently was he put his hands on air, hands on the kids' shoulders. He goes, you know, sometimes you're going to get disappointed in life. You've got to bounce back from things like this. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like you didn't get the autograph. You didn't get the autograph, but he got the uh, he got a team talk from Roy Keane, which if, in my opinion, at like, what, 10, 12 years old, is actually probably better than an autograph, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's good advice. And, uh, you know, just delving into my life and uh, the fact that I'm a dad of four, I often think, because my dad was really tough on me when I was younger and he constantly told me that I'd never make it because I didn't have the heart, I didn't have the desire, I didn't have the um, the mentality, he didn't think, to make it as a professional footballer. He'd tell me that I had the talent, but he'd always say, you'd never make it, never. You're not, you're not, you're not got the right mental capacity to make it as a, a top flight athlete. So imagine hearing that constantly from your dad so when I scored, I scored the last goal at Filbert Street just before I left Leicester. Yeah. And there's a picture of me. It's the most picture that goes around. It's like up at the club in Leicester and it's pointing towards the stadium um, when I scored that goal. And a lot of people think that that's a point of admiration and love because I'm pointing up to my family. That's me pointing to my old man to say, don't ever fucking tell me I can't do something. So whether he did that all through my life because he knew, but I don't think my dad's that intelligent because he knew, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this kind of psychology to push him forward. You know, he, yeah. I'm going to use that negative um, talk constantly to, to drive him forward um, because I'm lovely with my kids now. One of my, my youngest now plays for Burton. He's a really good player. He's in the academy at Burton. And I'm constantly, you know, um, plenty of praise. Don't worry about it, mate. We're in the best game today, but we keep moving forward. I think, am I doing the right thing? Because am I being too nice? Are we too nice now as a society? So, and as parents and as coaches, because you've got to, you know, there's that famous documentary that come out. There's, um, uh, there's no something in paradise. It was on BT Sport and it's about, Steven Gerrard talks a lot about all these academy kids now. They've got everything given to them. Mm -hmm. They've got the boots. They've got the kit. They're getting dropped off at different places. We do so much from now. Are we, are we leaving enough for them to do themselves where they've got to you know, be self-resilient and try and get there themselves? Um, and that's, it's a really big issue I look at, obviously, because of the academy that I run. Um, because you've got to have different ways of, of trying to bring them forward psych psychologically. And 
It's, it's just an interesting one to me, I think. Yeah, sometimes you need the knocks, I think. My, my opinion is sometimes you, you do need those knocks to your, your confidence and you have to have those uh, resilience, as you said. But I, I watched, a, on, on topic, I watched something with Robin Van Persie the other day. I think his kid's in the, <clears throat> in the Fine Lord Academy, I think. And he said um, there was a game where he was playing against Ajax. I think his kid's like 13, 14. Um, and he didn't get picked. He was on the bench, and I think they beat Ajax, which obviously a big derby. And he said he, in the car back, he was complaining, and he was like, "Dad, like, like the coach this and the coach that." And he said he was moaning. He said, and Robin Van Persie said, "I said to him, like, look, I'll always love you, like, yeah, regardless of anything. But at the minute, you sound like a loser. You you're blaming everyone else. And if you want to be yeah. a loser, I, I still love you. You're my son. Like, all I all I care about for you is that you're okay, and that when you're 20, you're a good person." He says, but. To me, you know, as a, as a man, you, you sound like a loser at the minute. Like, if yeah. you want to be a loser and blame other people, that's fine. And he said on the, the Monday when they went back to training, he said, I'm going to go watch the session just to see how he reacted, see if he's going to have the same kind of, oh, I haven't got picked. And he said he'd yeah, seemed yeah. like this kind of tiger just like running about the pitch and sort of like getting stuck into tackles and running and showing his pace and his power. And he said, ah, yeah, the guy wants to be a winner then. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. It's like, but then I did also think at the same time, not everyone has Robin Van Persie as a dad. So, you know, like, fuck, fuck <laughs> yeah. that guy. Um, one, actually, on topic, one thing I did want to ask, um, and I ask a lot of footballers this, and I get a lot of similar answers, but different experiences. You went to Mansfield on loan um, yeah. when you were at Leicester for eight games. Talking about academy players, a lot of the time now you'll have 22-year-olds that haven't played more than five games in the first team. Uh, sort of yeah. when I was young, your young players would always go out on loan unless they were like special talents like Rooney. So your time at Mansfield, what did those eight games sort of teach you and how did they improve you? That taught me a lot and it goes back to, so just so you can watch it or people listening can watch it, it's a great documentary. It's called No Hunger in Paradise. So when everything gets done for you, you hunger to get there yourself and to drive yourself forward is gone. And that's what exactly what Mansfield gave me. I did yeah. not want to play at that standard. But I did not want to go back down to that standard. I, had a, I got in for one game at Leicester City when Gary Parker, Gary Parker, the old Aston Villa, Leicester, Leicester footballer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, great player. He, he, was, he took over as manager for one game of Leicester City when um, Peter Taylor got sacked. And he was my reserve team manager. And he said, if I get the game, if I get any games in charge of the first team, I'm going to put you in because I was doing really well in the reserves. And um, he stuck true to his word. And we played the great lead side of the Duke of Hule, Rio Ferdinand, Jonathan Woodgate, um, Gary Keller, unbelievable side, Ian Hart. And um, we got, on my debut, I played really well, but we got beat 6-0. 6-0, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was horrible. Um, and sport, because I had played well against them great players, it gave me the confidence to think I belong at this level even though it was only for one game. So then um, Dave Bassett and Mickey Adams came in as managers and shipped me out on loan straight away. And I was gutted, absolutely yeah. gutted, because I thought, oh my God. But it helped me so much because dropping down to that level of League Two and the things that were going on, like there's no canteen and you've got to go to the corner shop and you've got to clean your own kit and you've got to... And this is what it comes back to with what I'm saying, no hunger in paradise. Because I had to do all that, it made me think, I don't really want to play at this level. I've got to do as well as I can while I'm here and embrace it. 
but I've got to keep constantly working to get back to that Premier League level that I wanted to play at. Yeah. So it was massive for me, huge. And um, I think loaning out youngsters to, to lower levels is a brilliant way to, to drive them forward. So many players, even sort of recent for me, would be like Johnny Evans at Sunderland. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know he didn't necessarily make it at Man United, as some people would say. But in my opinion, he did. Um, yeah. He's still playing top four or top five with Leicester. Obviously, he had the relegation West Brom, but those two seasons that he spent at Sunderland, one battling relegation, the other one gaining promotion, working under Roy Keane. He only dropped one level, but like, yeah. look at what look at what became of him. Um, in yeah, my yeah. opinion, still one of the best centre halves of the past ten years in the Premier League, easily. So. Yeah. Um, and I think it's the same across the board. You know, I've spoke to a few players who played in the SPL. I had Declan Gallagher on, who now plays for Scotland. He was at Celtic, couldn't get anywhere near the team, ended up at Stranraer of all places, which I don't know whether you've ever been to Stranraer, but it's a very small town and no, a, a very no, small there. club. It's where Kevin Kyle's from, funnily enough. Um, oh, yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah. Actually, you know what? Talking about that, Kevin Kyle, um, what was he like? Because I kind of believe, I mean, I can believe how famous he's got with Open Goal because Open Goal, I'll openly admit, is probably my favourite podcast that I listen to. But was he yeah. always that kind of character in the dressing room where you think he could pull off kind of a, a wingman on a podcast or a talk show or something like that? Yeah, no, because he's... So, he could, first of all, Kylo, he used to come in scruffy, didn't care what he looked like, sort of, he looked like... You know, footballers, they normally come in, they're driving really nice cars, they're all dressed, dripping with these designer clothes. He went like that, oh, you know, like three-quarter length trousers on and scruffy trainers and terrible dress sense. But great lad, great yeah. lad. Always got on with him. And do you know why, again, I'm showing, a, I'm showing a theme here. He was always honest. Always honest. There's no hiding what, what, what Kyler is. He, he, he says it. He is what he is on the tin. He's one of them kind of characters. But he's funny. He's... Just a great lad. I think I got him on, I did, I got him on my podcast and the, yeah. the way that he tells it and he came on, he told a, a story about when he had to um, come out of the first team for a while because he set his balls on fire <laughs> by mistake or his balls were burning because he dropped all hot milk on his balls and he was had to go to Sunderland Royal and you're like, what the heck? Like he coming on and tell stuff like that. So characters like that, I'm always going to get on with. But he's one of them guys that's funny without meaning to be funny. Yeah. Just because he's so honest and he just tells it how it is. And it's refreshing in this day and age because so many people, I think, put on masks and chat stuff that's not real and yeah. talk about all kinds of stuff that's not real. He's just comes on, he says it how it is. Oh, he's great. my balls pipes and I'm in the Sunderland Royal and you're like, mate, I would, I would burst out laughing because I didn't know he was coming <laughs> when he told it there. Great he's guy. He's brilliant. I've, even I've got a Kevin Kyle story and I've got to probably make an apology to him. But years ago, uh, the plan was to, to, to interview him and he was the loveliest guy. Yeah, of course, I'd love to speak about my time at Sunderland. Um, I'd love to speak about my time at Sunderland. This was back in the day on Facebook, it was, funnily enough. <clears throat> he says, yeah, no problem. I says, you've got some time on Sunday. He says, yeah, of course I have, mate. He says, what is it you do? I said, I do a bit of writing, do a bit of podcasts and stuff like that. And this is 2016. Like, I'm not qualified I'm, I'm blogging i'm not writing i'm blogging yeah yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and i'd wrote an, an article on him basically discussing how the problem with kevin kyle was he was always meant to be the heir to niall quinn and 
he wasn't Quinny and it wasn't his fault. And I've read it back literally every single time because I'm that kind of person. I'm anxious. I get nervous about stuff. And I read, mm. I've read it through and I've read it through and I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's no problem. And so it's actually, you know, Kevin actually wrote an article about you the other day. It's um, talking about how great of a guy you were and how you went to work on the ships and do all this kind of thing. And, and to me, the article that I wrote was like, you know what? He was unlucky that he was the eight and now Quinn was a completely different player. But look at what he's doing now. He's working for his family, doing this and all this kind of stuff. And at the time, I thought it was, you know, it was fine. Looking back, I can kind of see the holes in why it might have pissed him off. But stupid idiot, he oh, sent him, him off. Oh, I sent him it. And I was like, look, I've wrote this thing and shows me a really good light as a lad, as I thought at the time, as a, as I say, yeah. as a blogger, not a writer. Um, and he read it and he went, yeah, you know, some journalists are good. Some of them just talk absolute fucking shit. And with that, I'll leave Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> and I got blocked on Facebook and said, and I love Kevin Kyle. Like, I oh, love him. Jesus. What have a great you, guy. Have you, have you spoke to him since? Have you sorted that out? I haven't sorted it out, sadly. I want to sort it out because I love him. And I love his podcast and I love him. And I loved him when he was at Sunderland. Always threw himself in front of everything. And I always feel yeah. terrible that I've offended Kevin Kylan. You know what? I didn't mean to. So, Kevin, if you ever do listen, I am sorry. I do love you. <laughs> <laughs> I think he'll come back around with that. Mind you, I ain't read the article, but I think he'll be all right with that. That, um, was, that, that was right, though. That was... That's what I felt, um, yeah. Well, I would say, it, I mean, naturally, because he's big and he holds the ball up and he's good in the air, people are going to look at you know, him coming in as a sort of a, you know, an heir to the throne, as you say, yeah. of, of Niall Quinn. It might have been different if you did put things in the article like he weren't as good in the air, his touch weren't as good, he's not a good goal scorer, because basically then you're just butchering him. I think I, have butch- I think I did butcher him at parts. I think I put down that he was he's moved to Coventry didn't work out because I think he got voted their worst ever player. I loved him. He's the sort of Me like, too. I'm a manager now. I'm a manager now, obviously, and not just not just his personality, but the way he played, he gave you everything. And yeah. it it'll go in head things where people won't put their feet. He's that kind of lad. And I like characters like that. I've got a few in my team at the minute. Um, and he had a good touch and he was, he was quite quick and he was a good goal scorer. Um, I, I, I'd put him in my team. I think he's a, a good player, but more than that, he's a great lad. I think if it wasn't for his, because he got a, quite a bad hip injury, it's something that kept him up for the best part of the year. But that season where we missed out in the playoffs. I think he scored 16, 17 goals. And I think, you know, you look at the... I think at the time we'd gone from Phillips and Quinn, so it felt like anyone underneath that was like a, a downgrade, including the likes of Marcus Stewart, who was dynamite. Um, yeah, but like Andre Flo. <sighs> less about that <laughs> man. Move about. on, move on. <laughs> <laughs> He's a great but, uh, lad, though. What I will say about him, a real, real positive, bright human being. Really God. liked him good player when he was at every other club it was just it goes to show you that sometimes it just doesn't work out but with with Kyler like the thing that I quite liked about him was there's a goal against Sheffield United I always remember and it was a Bramall Lane and I can't remember who swings it in I think it was George McCartney and George McCartney swings across in and I think it's Jaggy Elka like sticks his boot in and Kevin Kyle's still there with his head gets it in the bottom corner and he mm-hmm. I think he's took like a kick to the head or he's took a boot but he's straight in with the fans like it just hasn't affected him and yeah, yeah I just yeah. I I suppose what I'm trying to say here is I always really liked Kevin Kyle and I really don't want him to think that I hate him and please unblock me because I've got bad anxiety over it for four years now. Um, <laughs> talking about yeah, you moved to Sunderland, I think it's been well documented that at the time and understandably so, you didn't want to leave Leicester. Um, yeah. that, that makes total sense to me. Like, 
why would you have wanted to at the time? You scored the last goal at Thurber Street. I know they were relegated, but it's your club. You know, you can quite easily come back up. But something come in for you. And I know, obviously, the story behind it was Leicester said, you've, you've kind of got to go. This is decent money. Yeah. Um, how regular of a situation is that for a footballer where you have to look like the bad guy or the traitor and you can't really say anything, but you know that's not the case and you can't speak out till 10, 15 years later? Yeah, yeah, great question. And it happens a lot all the time, I think. You still see it happening now, so I'm trying to second guess. Because you don't know for sure, as someone on the outside now looking into certain transfers, you don't know for sure if that... Because every player that turns up is obviously going to have the big smile... He's going to say the, the, the thing, the trigger, you know, sayings that he's going to do on Sky Sports, wherever I'm so pleased to sign, buzzing, looking forward to it. And at the time, I wasn't. But as soon as I started playing, as soon as I played the first game and then it, the realisation, I'm a Sunderland player now. I've been bought for big money. I've got to, I've got to put everything into this. And, you know, and then Leicester was a distant memory. As soon as I played that first game, Leicester was a distant distant memory um, but I think you see it happen all the time and it was no lie I didn't want to leave you know something imagine you dreaming for something for 12 years which what it was 8 to 20 when I got in the first team and then you you realize that dream and then 16 games later you sold it's just it, it was just difficult at that time but as soon as I played and you know the difference between the two clubs Leicester's a huge club but after you're finishing games at Leicester and you come outside, there's probably anywhere between 50 and 100 people shouting for autographs. And yeah. The first game that I played for Sunderland and came out and there's 8,000 still outside the ground asking for pictures, photos, autographs. I was like, wow, this club is massive. You know, the fan base, the passion. Um, and a lot of players shy away from that or don't like the fact that the fans express it both ways in Sunderland. I think if you're playing well, obviously they're loving you, the passion. And if you're not playing so well, they're on your back and they're getting at you. But as a footballer, I didn't mind that. Do you know what I mean? I, I embrace that and try and use it to, to better your performances. Talking about the manager that you came under, we've, we've spoken on Howard, um, but you came under Reedy and Reedy, in my lifetime, my first game was 93. So Peter Reed's untouchable pretty much maybe Allardyce for six months but Reedy's untouchable is my greatest ever son and manager because the first six years were just phenomenal and there's so many good memories with it but when he signed you that's kind of when things started going not just because he signed you by the way. Um, <laughs> when, when, when you came in shall we say that's when things yeah. were going like severely wrong would gone seventh seventh then boom 17th and it was like all oh, right um, and I can't remember who played first game of the season, but I know the first home game was Everton, and we lost one 0 um, Yeah, Wayne, and then we Wayne played United. Debut. Yeah, Wayne, it was. He came on his sub exactly the same time as me. It was. You're right. He, he was 16. I was um, 19. No, I was 20. And I was thinking, who's this young joker, 16 year old? And after about two minutes. I got the ball and I took, I took someone on and he sort of ran around to, you know, engage me before I crossed the ball. And we, we were coming shoulder to shoulder and I thought, this little 16-year-old's getting flung all over the place here. And I just went, boom. And I ended up in the advertising hoardings. And I was like, Jesus. And, and then in that game, you've seen some touches, you've seen his strength. I thought, fucking hell, this kid might be something special. You could tell that then. 
Um, but no, really, it did start going wrong the season before I signed, didn't it? Yeah. You went 17th, but you'd stayed in the Premier League. And then they signed me. They signed Tor Andre Flo, Stephen, Stephen Wright. Wright. Uh, Thomas Myra, Mark, Mark Thomas Stewart. Thomas Myra, Marcus Stewart. There was a, quite a few players that came into it. And there were some great players there. You know, Kevin Phillips, Niall Quinn, um, Stefan Schwartz. Marcus Stewart Joachim was a Bjorken. good signing, really. He scored yeah, like a few yeah, years yeah. beforehand. Um, it was a, looking at the team, it was a good team. And I think it's, it goes to show you that it's not always the quality, it's sometimes the, the cohesion in there. But mm. what I find quite interesting is that whenever I've heard you speak before about Peter Reid, you've always been full of praise and said like a change when Howard Wilson came in and so on and so forth. As a fan, I remember yeah. it being like, Oh, is this like too long with Reedy? Has he been like an Eddie, like an Eddie Howe kind of moment? He's been there too long. Um, yeah. But from a dressing perspective, then, did you still feel as together as always with Reedy? You couldn't quite put your finger on what was going wrong. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it was weird, mate, because you look around the dressing room. I remember doing this in the Newcastle game, the first derby that I ever played in. St James's. Yeah, St James's. We lost two 0 and I was looking around the dressing room that day and when you're seeing Kevin Phillips, Niall Quinn, Jason McAteer, Phil Babb, um, Thomas Sorensen, you, I was huge, huge players. The gaffer, everyone loved him. Everyone loved Peter Reeves still. So we were sort of around that time thinking, oh, we know we weren't playing too well, but we were thinking, why is everyone, why are all the Sunderland fans, you know, not, not sticking with the gaffer? He's like, we loved him, top man. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was going to start different because it, I don't know if it was the first game. It was one of the first games when we drew 1-1 with Man U. And we played really well. Tor Andre Flo scored. I think on McAteer. his debut. Yeah, McAteer. yeah, yeah. That's the one. McAteer and Roy Keane. Right, in your that book. Was, that was brilliant, that one. Yeah, Incredible. put that in your fucking book, Roy. <laughs> um, but that was a good game and we played well and you thought, this is going to be a decent season. I thought that season, around about that time, that uh, we were going to finish around mid-table. That's what it felt like. Um, and they definitely, I, I don't know if Bob Murray's come out and said it now, but I think he did get rid of Reedy too soon. Whether it was he yeah, got he rid, of, rid of, yeah, whether it was whether he got rid of him too soon or whether it was the appointment of Howard Wilkinson as his predecessor but it, it, was, it was one of the two because it was just a bad decision to replace Reed with a Wilkinson. McCarthy would have been... Do you think if we'd gone from... Because obviously McCarthy came in in March and we lost like the last 11 games, but we were, for want of a better word, it was fucked by that point anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We would have stayed up. Yeah, if McCarthy came in, I feel like yeah. there would have been something there. Because I remember at the time, there'd just been, there's so many names being flung about. I'm pretty certain, and this is rumour mill, central but I'm certain that McCarthy was the actual man that he wanted and he rang Howard Wilkinson to ask him what he thought and Howard Wilkinson went oh well what about me and for some bizarre mental yeah. reason he decided to choose Howard Wilkinson I had um I spoke to Kevin Phillips did a talking with Kevin Phillips a, a few years ago uh, actually just last year funnily um and he was talking about Howard Wilkinson's um grasping the nettle moment do you remember that yeah. When he brought in the bag of nettles. Yeah. yeah, and he put his hand in the bag. <laughs> mate, some of, the, some of the things that he did, mate, people, people think, like, I'm joking when I talk about some of the stuff that he did. You know, my famous one is the geese one. 
They yeah. made us sit down and watch a documentary on our geese flying formation, which I understand the sentiment when you first put it on, but like you can tell that story in two seconds. Look, geese, if they stick together and they have to go through all this hardship of crossing one continent to another, they have to work as a team. Yeah, I get it, Gaffer. Like, I know we're footballers, but we're not thick. But to sit there for 40 minutes watching this documentary, you're like, Jesus, no one talk. He used to come in and say things like, no one talk, just listen to it, understand it. It's going to help us. And then going to the stadium and doing team building exercises, you know, like um, trust falls, where you have to fall off a table and your teammates are catching you. The worst thing ever to do with footballers, because you know the banter mill is just going to yeah. like, oh, sorry, mate, I went looking and boom, people were whacking their heads off floors and all sorts. <laughs> it was just, mate, it was, and then the nettle one, he did some stuff, mate, that I was just like, he, like we said at the start of the podcast, mate, he was, he was way behind the times by that time, I think. A lot of people that I've spoken to about the Wilkinson situation, you know, the stories are funny and, and they've said, like, some people have said, I understand why he did it. Some people have said, yeah, you know, the psychological side, maybe that was before his time or too late, I don't know. But a lot of people have said the main problem was you would have a meeting about a meeting and there wasn't enough football <laughs> yeah. played and that was basically yeah. it. Yeah, it was. And and to break it down even further than that, because of that, we, we just weren't fit as a team. Yeah. So we were getting, like, teams were out running us, out working us. It was just a meeting about a meeting, mate. That's what we used to call it, meeting about meeting. And the only one that used to, it looked like to me, enjoy going to him was Phil Babb. He, he was the one that was always like, nah, nah, this is good. And he, he seemed to, like, really like the gaffer. The only one, everyone else was just like not having him. What were the um, like? What were the more experienced pros like with that? Because I'm trying to think of the dressing room at that time. You would have had Jody. Actually, would Jody have been experienced and he would have still been quite young. But uh, Jockey Bjorkland would have been in there, played at World Cups and stuff like that. And you've got a guy yeah, grasping yeah, nettles. There must have been like, a, I mean, they wouldn't have had WhatsApp then, but there must have been some kind of like chat where you could all speak. Maybe MSN Messenger, who would have known? We're going real back there. Yeah. Um, BB must have been Messenger. conversations. Yeah, BB. Yeah, that's right. Remember BB, Blackberries. We I all do. Like them. That's my, that's my age now. You I'm know, showing my age. Do you know what? What I will say is, I don't think, you know, at the time, you just knew he was bad, but I don't think there was people sort of talking between each other like, we've got to get him out. Let's down tools. Let's. You know, and I know that happens in football clubs now, but yeah. genuinely, I would say it if, it if we were all talking behind his back, saying he's shocking, he's awful. Like, but I don't think we were. You just knew that you didn't think he was a great manager, but we knew that we had to stay with him because he's what we've got if we didn't want to get relegated. So, but he, ju he just wasn't, he wasn't up to it, mate. And Steve Cottrell wasn't up to it. It was, it was a bad time in to have them to trying to lead you out of that mess uh and it, like your question was if mick mccarthy had come in straight away we would have i'm positive would have stayed in the premier league that that year do you know when mick mccarthy came in there's one player right who i thought was so talented um not rapping but he was talented with his feet but he never really made it but mick mccarthy brought a player in sean thornton yeah um, yeah, yeah. What are your memories of Sean? Because I know there's a story in there somewhere. There's got to be a Sean Thornton, just the way it rolls, isn't it? Mate, the craziest kid. <clears throat> I, 
even though I didn't have a long career, I played with a lot of people, a lot of yeah, characters, yeah. especially breaking through at Leicester. So many characters like crazy bastards as well. Savage. Um, Savage. Example. Matt Elliott. Um, Matt Elliott, Jerry Taggart, Frank Sinclair, Andy Impeth. Like this crazy Gary Parker. Crazy. Yeah. But out of all of them, this is how I'll say about Sean Thornton. He is without doubt the craziest. Just for what he did and how he was, and you know his his decision making was just off the scale bad. Do you know like knocking on your you know you go away from a away trip and you're staying in a hotel room down in London. Yeah. And normally normally Jeff would be with him, Jeff Whitler. Yeah. You get a knock at your door Friday night before a big championship game the next day. And this is not to put him down in any way because he was a brilliant player. But yeah, he was. Me and Jeff Pipes coming out for a few beers. Me and Jeff are sneaking out the back of the hotel and going, going out in London for a bit. I'm like, lads, we've got a fucking game tomorrow. Are you fucking thick? And they're like, no, 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 come on. It'll be fun. Like, you know, just things like that. But when they played, it, it's a weird one because you never looked at them and thought, they're not taking this football seriously. They were. It's just the kind of lads that they were. You know, Frank yeah. Sinclair was like it. Gave everything on a Saturday afternoon, but would go out on a Friday night and get have a few beers and get a bit steaming before a Premier League game on a Saturday. For someone like me, and the way I think, I I wouldn't wouldn't be able to do that and perform at the highest level. But funnily enough, those guys can make them decisions and still really perform to a high level on a Saturday. But just crazy. Crazy. <clears throat> Talking about um, Jeff Whitley there, Jeff's someone, again, that I've spoken to and mainly in depth about the, the kind of issues he's faced with his drinking and, I mean, um, and drugs and stuff like that. And, I mean, I was, I was taken back. I'm, I'm not lying. And what a great guy. And he's obviously working at the wellbeing team at the moment at the PFA and helping a lot yeah. of footballers, I think, anonymously. A, f- a fantastic guy now, but obviously he's had his issues. Out of curiosity, um, you've been quite open and honest about the issues that you had when football finished. Yeah. Is Jeff someone that you have crossed paths with and maybe shared sort of stories, not stories, um, an understanding with, shall we say? Yeah, funnily enough, the, the, I, I don't keep in constant contact with Jeff. Um, I've spoke to him on a few <laughs> occasions since I left, but the, the time that I did speak to him, which is weird, is because when you look back at both our timelines now, I was going through the worst period of my life and he was going through the worst period of his life. Yeah. You know, the last time we, we properly spoke and had a chat, it was probably two, three years after we left Sunderland and I was taking drugs, drinking, depressed, suicide attempts. And at the exact same time when I spoke to him, I bumped into him. I think it was in Manchester. Uh, We both didn't look great. But we, you don't, you don't realise at the time. You don't realise that you've put a bit of weight on. You look a bit unkept. You, you know, you look, you don't look right. You don't look good. You're not looking after yourself properly. And, you know, I didn't recognise that in Jeff, and he didn't recognise it in me. But when you look back at the timeline, we were both going through our major struggles then. And the way we spoke to each other is the same old way that guys talk to each other every day. You know. How are you, big man? Yeah, everything's great, mate. All's good. And that's the problem with it. You know, it, 
you can't you can't help the people that you don't know who need the help and not a lot of people are open enough to to say that they need help and they're struggling and they're going through a bad time you know as blokes especially women do it as well of course but we put a face on the front of it um and we need to open up a little bit more but it it because i looked at that with me and jeff that you know i've read some of the articles that talk about his bad time and it was almost mirrored in what happened with me yeah um and they're the times that we were both going through when we both were saying yeah mate everything's good looking forward to it moving forward and yeah it was the total opposite so it's standing still what i found quite interesting about jeff was um and you probably can maybe mirror the story here as well as he spoke about he said you know i did this and did this and he talked about his where it went from, how his house stopped like a spa shop, all the drink and the drugs, and that was there. Um, and then got all the way to where he is now. And he says, people look at me and think, oh, he's recovered. He's like, I still have to, you know, I still go to AA meetings. I still, yeah. and Kieran Brady, someone who speaks fantastically well on it. Um, yeah. He still has to, like every week at the time when we spoke, he still have to keep on top of it. It's not just a case of there's a problem and you fix it. Did you find, is that quite similar with you? Do you still find you have to kind of have a bit of a check now and again and just, you know, be like, am I still on the, the, the path I want to be on? Yeah, so for me, for me, it's slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I, when I went to rehab and sort of uh, went through that process, obviously I went to AA and I did that for four or five years after and going into the future. Um, I stopped drinking for, for almost two years. Um, obviously I've not took a drug since, you know, before I went into rehab. Uh, so that's probably, well, that's over 10 years now. I've not had any drugs, any recreational drugs. Um, but I started drinking again and a lot of people look at that and think, so I don't drink to excess now, but I, I call it, to socially lubricate when I'm out with my friends and uh, I fancy a beer, I'll have a beer. If I fancy a glass of wine with my missus, I'll have a glass of wine. But what they do say in rehab is that once you, once you do have a problem with drink and being able to control your consumption of it, and it becomes a detrimental aspect of your life, you should never drink again, which I understand. And I, I I agree with to a certain extent. And a, a lot of people, you know, when I did the under the cost, podcast a lot of people have sort of come below in the comment section and said that i fear for him because in the future if he started drinking again he will always get a problem again but my view on it is what i had lost in my life at that time was a purpose so from a kid growing up i always had a purpose something that's pulling me forward which is to become a professional footballer and once you're a professional footballer you want to become the best you can you want to you want to earn money, score goals, win trophies. So you have a purpose while you're a professional footballer. Football finishes for someone like me, or even if you have a bit of a longer career like Jeff, and your purpose in life has gone. So even when you've got children like I had, like Jeff has, even when you've got a wife, you've got a house, you've got, that's great. Your family is here, but you still need a purpose in life, something to draw you forward, to keep you on a pathway, to try and achieve something to wake up for in the morning. Um, And a lot of people don't understand that haven't struggled 
through those difficult times that family is a different part of your life. It's the biggest part of your life, but it's a different part of your life. You still need purpose in a professional way or something you want to do or a passion outside of your family that's going to pull you forward and keep you on a pathway. And that's what I lost. And now looking back, that's what I understand. I will always need that. So my purpose now is to grow and develop the FSD Academy that helps 16, 17, 18 year olds to find their purpose, whether it's football or education or that passion that we talk about and put them on a path. And that is an unlimited purpose for me because it can always grow and expand. And every year, 12, 15, 20 lads will come to us. After two years, they will leave. Another intake comes in, another intake. So I've managed to put in place something that gives me purpose now for as long as I want it to. It's not, it's not an end cause. Because I'm helping youngsters and those youngsters keep coming year on, year out, I've got a constant purpose that keeps me on a pathway, keeps me fit, healthier, um, and driving and striving forward. I think the struggles come when you lose a purpose. That's what I believe. It's, I've, <clears throat> online as well, I'm, I've openly been quite <clears throat> honest with the fact that like, I've struggled as well. And it's funny you mentioned um, about the purpose. I, I, I wouldn't say I had a drink problem, but I would say I drank more than I, I ever have in my life. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was when... I had a purpose from the outside looking in, but then you look back <clears throat> and it was a case of there was something missing. So I was missing what really was I wanted to do and, and you know, go out and do stuff. And I had a, a wife, I had a, a family, um, well, two cats. Um, I had <laughs> a job that I loved. I had a business that I got on with. Um, outside looking in, it was perfect. But I kept going out drinking relatively frequently um, consistently mm. and thinking and kind of starting to realize there was a problem there um, yeah. and eventually you start to realize it was because and I'll, I'll keep it private what it was but there's something that was missing uh, for me mm. and I didn't understand what it was that was missing so yeah. going through therapy which is something I did for a good couple of months and they just let me chat and eventually it was like oh that's why you're doing that because you need that if you understand that that's what you need then you can kind of either go for that or have an understanding of that something that your personality needs and then you don't necessarily mm. need to fill it in with with drink or drugs or whatever it may be uh, with myself being yeah. drink um and the understanding of it is um, but i'm 31 before i did that i'm, I'm 34 yeah. this year it took me to be 31 to be like Right, I'll go in and say that I'm not, I don't think I'm a great guy because I'm doing this. And there is the shame that comes with it. And there's all those other emotions that come with it. But I absolutely echo what you're saying there 100% because I felt like once I found out what it was that I, I was missing subconsciously for me, um, yeah, yeah. you can sort of fill that, fill that gap in or mm. learn to live with it um, and not medicate it, so to speak. Uh, medicate yeah, it. yeah, yeah absent as it, it was in my case <laughs> yeah 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 and it is a it is a constant for me it and, and as jeff has talked about before it is a constant that you have to keep developing for me yeah. you have to keep doing it and you know being aware of and you know i've got things in place now that help me so um fitness um being open and sharing as you did 
yeah. with, with a therapist. So I don't go to, I've been to therapists, but I, can, I have people around me now that if I'm feeling down or depressed or I wake up and I just don't quite feel right, I talk about it. I open up, I share about it. I go and do the fitness, the, the weight training. So I've got little triggers now that if you feel it coming over yourself, I can act immediately to sort of bring myself out of it. You know, the problem was it would come over me before I knew the, the, these triggers, what they were. And then the next day you, you've neglected the day before because you've not dealt with it. And then the next day you feel a slightly bit worse and you don't deal with it. And then the days become the weeks, become the months until you're in a place that you think only getting obliterated or taking some kind of drug is going to help you get through it. Um, so just right, every day I do my training, I go for my run. If I don't do it, I don't, I, I, I don't feel as good as the day before. Then if I'm not at well, for a constant period of time, I feel a little bit of it coming over and then all of a sudden it gets on top of you. So it is a constant process. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't say anything different to what you said from my own experience, absolutely 100%. Um, final question for me is in relation to sort of your book that's coming out. Um, obviously don't wanna give away too many stories because please go and buy it when it's out. Um, <laughs> but what I found quite interesting was uh, when you said it was coming out, you said, I think a lot of people dislike me after this, um, yeah. which I found quite funny. But then I think the guy who obviously um, ghostwrited it with you or, 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 or co-wrote it said that, no, I don't think people are going to do that. I think people are going to quite like mm. it. But So when you're releasing a book, and I think we spoke off air, there might be one or two things about certain people that maybe might not go down 100% um, well with them. So it was quite nerve-wracking yeah. when you want to write as honestly as you obviously are. But then yeah. at the same time, you don't want to upset people. No, it was really difficult. I mean, the main one was my dad. Because I know now, Graham, my dad's going to read it. He don't read much. And I, I was sort of going through a process where I thought, the last six weeks have been really difficult. And I only told him that I've done a book 10 days ago. And it was because I was building up to that point. I didn't want to say, I've done a book and this are the kind of stories that are going to go in it because he will do, he won't like it, mate. I know yeah. it. Me and my dad are close now, but he won't like some of the stories. He's very private, but I, to, to give everyone a grasp of who Matt Piper is and why he is the lad that he is today, I've got to tell them difficult stories of when we, when I was younger and the sort of the, the backwards and forwards that I had with my old man. Um, so that was difficult. And I told him and, you know, when he reads it, we'll see. He's not very well at the minute, so I hope that he... I don't think he will, but I know that there's going to be some stories in there that he would have preferred not shared. But that's the difficult process with doing a book. When it's an autobiography, you've got to tell it how it was or there was no point in doing it. Yeah. And I said that to him, and I think he understands. So that was very difficult. The other difficult one was telling stories that could hurt someone else. So not just hurt them as in their feelings, but it could hurt them um, with what people thought about them after the story that I've told. So it was a difficult balance because you do, of course, I mainly want people to look at me and think, wow, he's open and he's so honest. But 
of course, you, sometimes you can't give every single little detail because I don't want to be writing a book and hurting someone else in, in a detrimental way if I didn't need to and I can still get the theme of the story across. So that was difficult, trying to um, peg your way through uh, that. Um, but it was difficult because... You know, I've not done anything awful in my life. Anything awful, like where I'm going to go to prison if the police found out about it or something like that. I'm talking, when I talk about, I remember the tweet that you said, you know, when I talk about that, it's more of, because I've built, you know, my character now is reflected quite well, I think, through the things that I do, the podcast. You know, people who don't know me, they'll think, I think they will know that i'm a i'm a decent guy yeah I'm, I'm, I'm a quite nice guy i try and be a bit funny a bit all, all the other bits but i'm damn deep i'm a nice kid and, and i think that's reflected well now some of the stories in the book will suggest differently to that you know some of the bad decisions that i made some of the not so great stuff that i did when i was under the influence of alcohol or drugs or um or in them dark places uh but that's why I put that tweet out. And but you got you got to put the stories out there, and you got to let people judge for themselves. So when it comes out on the thirty first of August, uh, and people start reading the book, we'll we'll see if um, my Twitter following drops off a cliff. Or <laughs> oh my god, I didn't know it was like this. What a clown! Fuck him off. <laughs> five hundred followers down from 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 twelve thousand. You're writing what you're saying, though. I mean, like. I think everyone, uh, if they've got to a point where they've needed to go to, to therapy, unfortunately, you've probably hurt people on the way. Um, yeah, I, I yeah. can hold my hands up and say that I've probably done yeah. that as well. And um, I think it depends on how many times you do it. <laughs> and then at yeah, that point, yeah. when you get to the end of it, if you start clicking on pretty early doors and go, I'm going to get help for this, you can only yeah. but apologize for you know hurting people because of going out late, drinking, you know, whatever it is that you can do to hurt someone, which is... Yeah. Sometimes you don't even recognise, but I'm sure it'll be a, a, a funny read in parts as well. We've we've talked very serious towards the end there, but I'm pretty sure there'll be some stories in there that'll make me howl. Oh, there's all sorts in there, mate. There, there's some good ones. There's some that you will have heard before. Sorry, I'm just. I wanted to get him on a podcast. Can I get him on yours? Yes, of course you can. Oh, amazing. What's his name? Sonny. Amazing. After yeah, Montari. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. His real name's Santino. Santino, but we call him Sonny. But I wanted to get him on a podcast, so I'm glad you let him on yours, big man. I could never put my uh, my dog on it because as much as I love her, she's incredibly ugly. Um, <laughs> a really, really ugly and old dog. But Pipes, thanks very much. Awesome chat. Mate, thanks for having me, buddy. Really appreciate it. More than welcome.